This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. In our service, um, we dedicate the merit of our service to Shakyamuni Buddha first, and then next to Bodhidharma, the monk who brought uh, Zen practice to China from India. And uh, Bodhidharma, there's stories about Bodhidharma, famous for many things. But the one thing that he said that I want to focus on at the beginning of the talk today is uh, very short. He, he, after he went to China, he had an interview with the emperor. Uh, and the interview wasn't going well. He was giving the emperor answers that the emperor didn't understand. And so the emperor finally asked, who is this that stands before me? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. And, and I want to say that this is exactly what Bodhidharma brought to China. I don't know. He brought the China Zen, pra uh, Zen practice, which is the practice of I don't know. <coughs> For the last few weeks we've been investigating the teaching stories of um, a lineage early in our, our Zen history. Uh, lineage that started, well I guess with the sixth ancestor, and then Nanyue, and Mazu, and Nanchuan, and Zhangshu, those four guys. So that means Zhao Zhu was um, ten generations from Bodhidharma. And um, first evening when I was talking about this lineage, I think I read like a dozen at least different koans from this lineage. And then uh, I asked people for their thoughts and comments. And I, w I was surprised that no one had anything to say. <laughs> and, 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 and later I thought, well, koans, these teaching stories of ours, their purpose is really to help a person get beyond logical thought, you know, sequential thought. <coughs> and I, I had just unloaded a dozen of them on you. And then I was surprised that nobody you know, had anything to say about it or any, you know, questions to ask about it. But actually, I should have known because that's, that's what koans do. They induce, I don't know. So this is a crucial part of our method of working with koans is, is that state, I don't know. Sometimes with a koan, we have a sense of, that doesn't make any sense to me. And that's good, right? Because <laughs> if it was easy to figure out, if it could be 
solved like a, a math puzzle, Koan would not have survived. The reason Koans survive is that they help us get beyond our prejudices about the world and how the world works. They even help us get beyond Buddhist teachings about the world and how the world works. So sometimes we read a koan and we think, oh, this is about emptiness or whatever, you know. Okay, that's a warning. If you, if you have some sense of the, uh, the philosophical underpinning of the koan, you probably missed it. Koans should invite us to enter into an area of not knowing. And even if thoughts are there about, oh, I think this is about this, I think this is about that, koan invites us to drop it and really penetrate penetrate it as itself, not as an example of something else. So we feel ourselves into a koan and we, we take on the nuances that are escaping us. We can allow ourselves to be shaped by the koan. We allow them to reveal themselves to us in our life which is another way to say we allow them to reveal ourselves to us in our lives. And uh, our way of living with koans is to actually live with them, to, to bring them into our lives. Bodhidharma, when he had that en- interview with the emperor that didn't go very well, he he went and he went to Shaolin Temple, you know, Kung Fu, Shaolin Temple, and uh, sat facing the wall for nine years. And uh, in a way, I think we could say that Bodhidharma was allowing Zazen to be his koan. He could never have sat and faced the wall for nine years if his attitude in Zazen was, Okay, I got this down. I know all there is to know about zazen. How could he have sustained his zazen? Even, even with his great heart and his desire to save all sentient beings and to bring Zen practice to China, I think he couldn't have done it unless in each moment he could be open to whatever was going to show up. Not predicting whatever was going to show up, not you know, organizing his thoughts so that he knew exactly what would show up, but to be open, to, to have that I don't know that he told the emperor about. So in Koan and in Zazen, we investigate not knowing. And we investigate it in a way that preserves not knowing. That embodies not knowing. We investigate not knowing in a way that doesn't end with knowing. This is very unusual for us. Sometimes we have a feeling, I don't know. And you know, we Google it or whatever and we have curiosity until we find the answer and then we know. And then 
you know, our investigation stops, but Zazen is not this kind of investigation. Not the kind of investigation that ends in knowing something, but the kind of investigation that doesn't really go beyond not knowing. So Zazen, it's practice that we have of not knowing. We sit because we know that there, there is a place. Maybe we have a deep feeling that this place is essential to our well-being. But we sit because we know that there is a place that is not reached in our familiar, uh, familiar thinking. And I'd like you to remember, why did you start to do Zazen? Was it because you already had everything figured out and obviously Zazen was the thing to do? I doubt it. Right? That's just not why, how we start. Did your Zazen practice arise out of a convic conviction that you knew the right way? that you had that idea, I know the right way, and it's Zazen, when you started Zazen. And, you know, that was a useful delusion, because it got you to sit. But, obviously, if you look back, you'd say, well, actually, I didn't know the first thing about what the right way was. I really want to know what the right way is, is, is closer to how we start Zazen. And that might be the beginning of practice, that sense, I really want to know. I remember thinking, I want to find out where this goes. So that's the beginning of practice, but it's not really practice. If we, if we practice with the idea, I really want to know, our practice is another form of acquisition. It's basically an extension of our grief. We acquire material goods, but also we acquire knowledge. Some of us here have degrees. We, we have been spending a lifetime acquiring knowledge. And some of us have got to be expert and uh, being the person who knows, who, who has acquired knowledge. So it's a matter of getting, and, and it's endless. The acquisitive mind, once it starts, it doesn't really stop. In most situations, in most situations of daily life. But when our mind is somehow turned away from its preoccupation with acquiring things, we call that zazen. We call that I don't know. And we call that koan practice. When mind 
not focused on gaining. So we should investigate this place because Bodhidharma tells us it's a pretty crucial place in Zen practice. We should investigate the place that is an investigation that does not end in knowing. Some centuries after Bodhidharma in China, a teacher by the name of Dijang uh, saw his student, Fa Yan, dressed in his traveling clothes and going, leaving the monastery. He had his straw sandals and his staff and his conical hat, pack on his back. And Dijang said to Fa Yan, where are you going? Fayan said, I'm going on a pilgrimage. Dijang said, What is the purpose of your pilgrimage? And Fayan said, I don't know. They really had it right. <laughs> Dijang said, not knowing is most intimate. I love that story because it says so clearly how our Zen practice has been thought out by the, thought out, has been discovered by the ancients to bring us to a place of great intimacy with the world, great intimacy in our lives. And Fayan's not knowing that was that Dijan thought was so intimate. It's just, I don't know, I'm gonna see. What is the purpose of your pilgrimage? I really don't know. Check with me later. This not knowing is non-dualistic. It refers actually just to experience. But it doesn't refer to acquiring anything. What's the purpose of, the, of your pilgrimage? There will be some experience. Purpose is not, I'm going to gain something. Purpose is not even, there's going to be a person who experiences that thing. This not knowing is a non-dualistic not knowing, which is just this, just experience itself. It's not really knowledge, but it's not ignorance either. Ayan is saying about his pilgrimage, ask me later, I'll tell you, I, later I could relate to you the experience I've had. But basically the deepest purpose of this walk through the world will reveal itself as I walk. 
Anything I could tell you now, he says, would just be my idea, my fantasy of what might happen. At best it would be some kind of rationalization for why I put on my traveling clothes and I'm putting one foot in front of the other. So Ayan said this about his pilgrimage and we could say this about our Zazet. Or we could say this about our Kohan stuff. Why are you doing this? Well, anything I could tell you now would just be an idea. And when he says that, his teacher says to him, that's it. No matter how far you walk, just stay there. And that, of course, is our Zazen, which is koan-like and which is pilgrimage-like. We've all been in a spot of not knowing. Usually we really don't like it. <laughs> right? I think of the last time you really said, I really don't know. Mostly this comes up in our lives where it, we're in some kind of crisis. <laughs> you know, just that sense of being unmoored is, is not fun for us. It's that sense, now what do I do? The kind of not knowing that says, I've never been here before. We don't like it. <laughs> And it's dangerous to be there. Uh, last night, I was watching movie uh, streaming, The Last of the Mohicans. You guys see that movie? Daniel Day-Lewis. Every woman in the country knows this movie. <laughs> uh, and it's great. It's, it's a really great movie. And there's one scene where Uncas and Chingachcook and Natty Bumpo are escaping from this band of Mohicans who have captured the women. Uh, but they're escaping and they, they, uh, they end up going over this waterfall. And then there's another waterfall you know, that they're going to have to go over, or it looks like they're going to go over this waterfall. is amazingly tall. Um, and somehow, this is not very possible, but somehow they have beached their canoes just at the brink of the waterfall. I don't know if you've ever been around a big waterfall, but once you're at the brink of the waterfall, you're not making any turns, right? But somehow they have gotten their canoes to the side at the brink of this waterfall. And you see them from below, and they're standing kind of at the edge of the waterfall. The water is just passing through their legs and falling. <laughs> from moment to moment, from instant to in instant, the place they are standing is completely new. This water's gone. 
Here's more water. It's gone. More water. It's gone. And there's this great scene. They were just standing there, and the water was just passing through. Going really past them. Thought this is this is us in our lives, right? We're standing in the middle of the waterfall, and the water is just rushing through. And the best we can do is to stand there and to see it happen. Sometimes, you know, it scares us so much to look down that we close our eyes or we, you know, try to jump to the shore. But here they were, standing at the edge, watching the waterfall of their lives. If we were standing there, we could get lazy. And we'd say, oh yeah, this is pretty familiar. Look, there's water now. Oh yeah, there's still water. Oh yeah, still water. But that would really be to be standing in the idea of waterfall. If we were really standing at the top of waterfall, it would take our whole attention, it would take our whole being to be there. It might seem familiar, but if we look, it's not. That water is going. Each molecule of water is disappearing right in front of us. Dogen says, emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. And this is our life. When we're in a position of not knowing, it's scary to stand at the top of the waterfall. What to do? couple pieces of, of advice, pay attention. Another piece, don't fall asleep. Another piece, don't get lost in your idea where you are. Pay attention to where you really are. question comes up, you know, when we're standing at the top of the waterfall, or, or we're about to go on a pilgrimage, or the bell is ringing to begin the zazen period. The question comes up, isn't there something that I could hold on to? Isn't there something that I could acquire <laughs> that would help me with this? So let me go back to uh, uh, Dijon and Faya. Uh, because there's apparently a part two to the story. It doesn't appear in the koan collections, but Yamada Roshi says that there's a part two to the story, and this is part two. They walked to the monastery gate together, and there happened to be a large stone by the entrance the monastery. And Dijang said to Fayan, you monks, you usually say that the whole universe is one mind. So just tell me, is this stone inside the mind or not? And 
this teaching, uh, the universe is one mind, is, is actually a famous teaching from the Flower Ornament Sutra. So it's, it's gospel, as you say. Uh, so Fayan, knowing that the answer couldn't be the stone is outside the mind, because the, the sutra says it's inside the mind, it says it's within the mind. And Dijang says to him, it will be awfully difficult for you to travel around with such a big stone inside of you. <laughs> and what we want to do in our lives is we want to have a good heavy stone to settle us down that we can hang on to, right? Some, some good, high-quality ideas that will tell us exactly what the world is like. Groundless. <laughs> and then we run across koans. <laughs> and they take our stones away from us. They take our ballast away from us. Or we run across Zazen. And there wasn't a stone from the very beginning. Now there are some koans that really are um, powerful at making us drop our stones, drop the stones in our minds, you know, that are powerful that, uh, in a way that helps us to get beyond our ideas and get to a place of not knowing. And in the lineage that we've talk, been talking about, of Nanchuan and Shu. A monk asked Zhao Zhu, in all earnestness, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? This could be the most famous question in all of Zen. Does the dog have Buddha nature or not? Because the scriptures say there's only one answer, and the answer is, of course, the dog has Buddha nature. All living beings have Buddha nature. So the monk asks this of Zhao Zhu, but the koan says he's earnest. It's not like he's slyly setting a trap for Zhao Zhu, but he's earnest. Does, does the dog have Buddha nature or not? I think maybe in China at that time, Dogs were not like our pets and members of our family. Right? A lot of people in East, East Asia would eat dogs, so you don't, you know, like make a pet, pet out of something they're going to eat. And probably the dogs that were hanging around were not the like cleanest, most lovely animals. I think it was kind of like mangy cur. Does the mangy cur have Buddha nature or not? <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like saying, does this kind of <laughs> decrepit, devalued being really have Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhu said, 
No. So actually, what he said in China was Wu. And when this koan comes to Japan and is translated, the answer is Mu, which is a word that means no, or not, or none. It's, it's a, like a, a basic negation. Does the dog have Buddha and nature or not? Xiaoju says Mu. Um, so when we translate this Mu, it's kind of like a heresy, right? Because the teaching is that the dog does have Buddha nature. So that makes us think we should try to go beyond this, the no. And so in, in America, this is, is not translated because nobody knows what Mu means, right? And actually, this was a way of studying this koan that originated uh, before Dogen went to China. When Dogen went to China, monks were studying this koan, kind of in the way it's studied now, where Zhaozhu's answer, Mu, is kind of taken as having no meaning whatsoever. As if it was a totally foreign word that didn't signify anything. There was no idea that was attached to this Mu. Now, I personally think it's quite possible that one way to work with this koan is to consider that mu does mean no. But it's not an answer to the question. It's a statement to the monk who's asking the question. Like, does, does the dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhu's answer is, no, you're on totally the wrong track. This is not how you will solve the problem of life and death. You ask, does the dog have Buddha nature? So maybe the no was kind of the same as, you know, sometimes teachers would hit the monk with a staff or shout at him. Maybe, maybe it was basically the same thing to say, get out of your head. <coughs> But that's not the way this, this koan is practiced. Holy cow. This koan is practiced as an invitation, as a command to not know. So, Joshua's answer, Mu, we take it as uh, indecipherable and yet of utmost importance. Not Indecipherable in the way of, oh, forget that, let's move on to the next koan. This is only, this is number one, you know, <laughs> in the gateless gate. Let's move on to number two. In fact, the, uh, the person who put together that collection of koans, the gateless gate, um, practiced with that koan for, uh, for six years. And then he finally woke up to it. And when he woke up to it, he said, Instantly, all beings' eyes are opened, and the myriad things come together. 
And then Mumon, when he presented this poem, he wrote a commentary about it. And the commentary tells people how we should practice this koan, at least in this tradition. He said, for the practice of Zen, you must pass the barriers set up by the ancient patriarchs of Zen. To attain to marvelous enlightenment, you must completely extinguish all thoughts of the ordinary mind. If you have not passed the barrier and have not extinguished all thoughts, you are a phantom haunting the weeds and the trees. No, no substance. <coughs> so his instruction is to concentrate on this syllable, mu, making your whole body and every bone in your body and every pore in your skin into a solid lump of questioning, a solid lump of not knowing. He says, day and night without uh, ceasing, keep digging into it, but don't take it as nothingness or as being or non-being. It must be like a red-hot iron ball which you have gulped down and which you try to vomit up, but you can't. You must extinguish all delusive thoughts and beliefs which you have cherished up to the present moment. That rock that's been so comforting. We have to let that go. And after a certain period of such efforts, Mu will come to fruition. And inside and outside will become one, naturally. You will then be like the dumb man who has had a dream. Dumb in the sense of a person who can't talk. The person who has had a dream, but he can't speak. This, this is a great image. A person who knows exactly something, something from deep inside. But there's no way to communicate it to anybody. You will know yourself for yourself only, Muman says. The thing I don't like, I think this is an amazing image and amazing, you know, instructions. So the instruction is wholeheartedly being moved. What is moved? Just be it. What is it? You know, we want to analyze it. You can't. There's nothing to analyze. Wholeheartedly be that. Well, talk about engendering, not knowing. Right? So that's, that's what this column does. The thing that I disagree with is this end, you will know yourself for yourself alone. Because I'm not sure that Zazen or Koan, or even the powerful Koan move, 
gets us to any place where there's knowing. At least not the way we think of knowing. It certainly doesn't get us to a knowing that is um, uh, the opposite of uh, ignorance. I'm not saying this right. It doesn't get us to any knowing that we we can acquire and that, that we could pass on to anybody else. Except so so like a dumb man who's had a dream, you can't tell anybody. But maybe we could push each other a little bit in the direction of not knowing. Not to say, oh, if you just not know for a little while, then you'll learn this. It'll be wonderful. No. But we could nudge each other to say, sit a little bit longer. I know you want to get up, but the bell hasn't rung. Wait to the bell. We could nudge each other to stay with that story from, from the ancient masters. may never solve it, but that's good because it's not there to be solved. Stay with not knowing. We could tell that to each other. Mumon calls uh, this koan the perfect manifestation and the absolute command. And then he warns us, a little has or has not, and body is lost. Life is lost. So this method of working on this koan and things that great teacher Mubon is saying about this koan really does say let's see if we can tolerate standing on the edge of the waterfall and watching the water go and knowing deep inside knowing in a way that we might not be able to say that there's no difference between us and this water that we are Totally one. Um, sorry, I've talked a lot and we're running out of time, but does anybody want to say anything or ask a question? Yes. Um. The Mu koan, um, I think it might have been in the Three Pillars of Zen. Yeah. Uh, but <clears throat> so there's a, a, a story about a Rinzai temple where people were trying to progress with this koan. Yeah. Uh, and some of the ways that they were working with it were they were vocalizing Mu loudly. So a bunch of, of the monks were up all night 
um, you know, loud sounding like a <coughs> cows, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> just mooing all night. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. I think it's more aggressive than cows. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know? It's really put your whole <coughs> being into this moo. <laughs> and I think when I first read about that long ago, I didn't quite understand how that would be a way to work with this poem. <laughs> I but know. It's, you know, it's a little more clear yeah. as you talk about uh, yeah. trying to get beyond some of the head stuff and embody yeah. what Moo might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, in that story from Three Pillars of Zen, I think it's about a Rohatsu Sashimi. Yeah, and, I think you know, that's right. The monks mm -hmm. are really just trying to break through and awaken. Mm -hmm. And most of them are working on moves, so mm -hmm. it's pretty loud, yeah. noisy. noisy <laughs> but this idea, keep it in front of you at all times. Keep it in front of you so um, vividly that there's no difference between you and it. It's not really you're here and it's there. There's just move. Okay, we could do that with our lives. We could live them so vividly that there's no difference between us and life. We might even yell <laughs> in the middle of that experience. Yeah. Other questions? Before you started talking about Wu, when you were talking about the koan not knowing is most intimate, I thought you were setting it up for a different one, which I think conveys the same point. It's also a pilgrimage koan where okay. a monk is leaving the monastery and the teacher comes out after him, where are you going? Oh, I'm leaving to go study with such and such. And the teacher said, oh, well, it's dangerous and dark out there. Take this light. And he grabs it. And as soon as he grabs it, the teacher blows it out. And we're saying both of them did darkness. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think that's just so <laughs> evocative of that. Not knowing is most intimate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How intimate is that when all of a sudden the two of them can't keep track of where they are or where anything else is? And yeah, and all of the ability to make discriminations is all of a sudden gone. <laughs> right? With no control over it. No control over it? It's dark. It's, you it's, can't, it's dark out there. You can't tell the difference between the dog and the Buddha nature. It's just—it's all dark. It's all the same. Yeah, that's a great con, right? Yeah, that image really works for me. I don't know why. It's, it's always been a very powerful one. That's right. And when we say, "Why does that seem so powerful?" It's hard to say. Yeah. But it evokes something, some startle response that brings us right here. Yeah. It's one of the ones that's easy to picture. Somewhere you kind of you can see just where they're standing. Yeah, there, sure. Know, yeah, that's right. right. It's real. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I didn't see this part of the movie. Did they go over the waterfall in the canoes? Uh, they went over. In fact, I, I it gave you slightly <laughs> the wrong context. It wasn't at the very end where the Mohawks come to to uh, kill them, but, but they're being chased by the Mohawks. They go over one waterfall, which is, mm, I don't know, 10 feet tall, maybe. But you don't know that when you first see them go over and do, oh my god, but, you know, they kind of go over in there. But the next waterfall 
you know, Niagara Falls like waterfall, and they don't go. Mm -hmm. Right? They they get off to the side somehow, and they stand there and with life flowing right through them. Pretty cool. So do we. Mm -hmm. The story of the of the pilgrimage and, and when he's asked what he expects to get from it, is that the question? Yeah. And he says, I don't know. Uh, I resonate with that a lot. I feel that I'm in this ending of my undergraduate career, mm -hmm. and so I want so badly to go on a pilgrimage, <laughs> but I live in like the structure in the society that needs me to justify it, whether that's for like financial support or even just like emotional support. It's like, why are you doing it? Where all of these logistical things that that now yeah. I know that whatever, whatever answer I give is me rationalizing or sure. trying to really come up with with something that may not even be real. You know, like I'm uh, really yeah. creating, falsifying yeah. something. Yeah. When in actuality, the, the most truthful answer is I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to be in that position, isn't it? Because you know, I'm kind of making this up when I say, yeah. no, this will be good for my yeah. vita, or this will be good. You know, uh -huh. I know I'm kind of making it up. I'm, I'm being driven by social appropriateness here and, yeah. and giving these things. And the monk, Fayan, could have done the same thing. Well, I'm going to study Buddha nature. And, uh, but the monk was coming from some place, maybe like you, where he's saying, I just have to do it. <laughs> right? What's the purpose? It's just my feet won't hold back from walking forward. Okay, thanks for your your participation in this. Song.